Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Yo. And we also have a special guest, Lisa Maloof, who is a scriptwriter for TV by day and by night a film reviewer for the Limerick Review. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's good to have you on the show. First time on Film Fight Club. It is indeed. It's going to be an especially great show because we've finally rid ourselves of the weight that's dragged us down for too long, Virat Nehru. Virat, yeah. Isn't it, isn't it just so exciting not to have him stinking up this room as usual? It's, it's so different. There's an air of... Just, yeah, positive. Positivity. It's just so refreshing. But this is Film Fight Club. We, oh, is it supposed to be? Uh, I guess we'll have to drag him in. Yeah, we're, we're, sh- we're sure. We are sure he'll. We will be back because we have many films to discuss, including some that he had some pretty strong views on. Yeah, hopefully he'll arrive in time for a bit of a biff on Film Fight Club. But stay tuned, dear listeners. Yes, do because we have a lot of films. We got to have a record number of films this week because we are joining you for an hour from six till seven, and we will be joining you from six till seven every night this January. Yeah. Full hour in prime Every time. Wednesday this January. Every, Every night would be great, Every, but yes. I think there's not enough films in cinema. We'd have to expand to like what what we've all watched on Netflix. Speaking of which, yes, we are doing a Netflix only episode next Monday because we have had ongoing discussions about what is Netflix, what is film, what's it, what does it mean for the future of cinema. So we are dedicating an episode entirely to awesome and some not so awesome films that are screening on Netflix. But for the moment, we are talking traditional cinematic releases, and there are. We're talking a number, a lot oh, of yeah, films. Oh yeah, it's the summer. There's, there's just too many Oscar bait movies in cinemas right now. The good thing, though, because it is Oscar season, we are getting a high level of good films. There's that yeah. time in the, you know, sort of around spring when there's not much happening and there's all the crappy films come out. So I think we're at a good time that there are quite a few good ones. I think so too. And one of the ones we're going to be talking about is one of the ones that I think should do well at the Oscars. So far, possibly my favourite of the year, which is Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. We're also talking about Molly's Game, the new film, Jessica Chastain, written by... Oh, my God, the West Wing alumnus Aaron Sorkin, my hero. His directorial debut. And his directorial yes. debut. We're also talking about what is a completely uncontroversial film called All the Money in the World that has not been talked <laughs> by controversy in any respect. Does that be not fair? Not at all, no. Not at all. But first, we are talking about a film which is tailor-made for not just the Oscars, but for Academy Awards and Film Awards everywhere, which is Steven Spielberg's The Post. This is starring one of his... One of, America's favourite actor. And, and Spielberg's favourites. <laughs> yes, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, as well as a number of others, including Michael Stolberg, who has done very, very well Isn't this year. is he having such a great... He's in three big yeah. Oscar bait films for the year. Yeah, so. yeah. Wow. He's done... He's he, amazing. Yeah. He is phenomenal. He's, he's fantastic in all of them, but doesn't he just kill and call me by your name? Oh, my favourite scene of last yeah, year was, exactly. his, was his speech. Extraordinary, it's, right? I've never seen him in a bad, in a bad film. He's, he's, he elevates everything he's in. He's just terrific. He is phenomenal, and he was good in this too. The poster stars a number of amazing actors, including Bob Odenkirk from Better Call Saul. You know, there was something really amusing about Bob Odenkirk's casting, which is that they paired him with David Cross. So it's the reunion of the classic comedy duo Bob and David, and I noticed that they were very careful to often have them standing next to each other. Or, or there would be, you know, they had seats next to each other in the newsroom, or you'd have Tom Hanks in the middle and Bob and David on either side. So, yeah, it's, it's they created the fantastic uh, HBO sketch comedy show, Mr. Show, in the 90s, which I recommend to anyone who likes absurd humor. It was kind of the 90s own Monty Python. Anyway, back well, to the post. Yes, actually, were there any veiled references to this? I can't quite remember. Not really. It was just it, just the visual of having those two together, I think. Just, it says it all, just yeah, having exactly. their faces. Yeah, 
So, yeah, this is a film that has been tipped for Oscar glory. Lisa and I saw this together at the beautiful Palace Central Cinemas right across the road. Lisa, what did you think of The Post? I think it was very good. I, I did enjoy it. Look, I am partial to films or scenes set in newsrooms. I grew up on Jean Arthur, Barbara Stanwyck, Rosalind Russell, all the sassy dames in the, in the newsrooms. Now... Our leading woman here isn't exactly a sassy dame, but she is a strong woman, more like quiet strength, as opposed to the fast-talking sort of Barbara Stanwyck type, uh, you know, actual, those sort of journalists. And uh, look, I think I think she was terrific. And I think one of the things with, with Meryl Streep is she's so consistently good. There's this expectation that she'll always be good. So when she is, I don't think she even gets the the full due that she deserves because she makes it look so easy. Yeah. And 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 not not dissimilar to you know America's Dad, Tom Hanks. I think they're both just so consistently good, and sometimes they get yeah told it's a bit easy. But I, I think they're they're both they were both excellent. Great. You yeah. Know, Tom Hanks showed some really fantastic comic timing in this dramatic role, I think. Oh, there was some witty. Yeah, there yeah. were certainly, even though it's a drama, there were quite a quite a lot of witty witty moments and uh, cheeky sort of eye roll stuff that yeah, exactly. I, I appreciate that. Look, um, there was a so there was a lot of you know grandstanding and scenery chewing sort of stuff, you know Oscar bait stuff, but. I still found it compelling. I, I was, you know, interested the whole time. And other than these main leads, we also had, as you mentioned, this supporting cast. And people like, we talked about Michael before, but, you know, Jesse Plemons is in everything. He, he seems to have been in about 20 major films in the last three years. The Breaking Bad effect. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Bob Odenkirk, Jesse Plemons. Uh, you know, uh, Bruce Greenwood, Alison Brie, all these people some really really good supporting supporting cast and i think a lot of the other the other design elements like i loved the costume design like some of meryl's caftans were just amazing the 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 dinner party all the uh, costumes at the dinner party and even the the sort of 1974 suits in the offices i thought it was all spot on and the production design the interiors of the offices all the houses a lot of detail there and i think that was excellent no, I, uh, it was, and it was beautiful to see. Um, I will just note, I think we haven't, I, I haven't properly explained exactly what this film is about. I should just note that it is, of course, about the uh, leaking of the Pentagon Papers in the early 1970s, which are the papers that implicated the various U.S. administrations in um, the conflicts in the Southeast Asia, and whether various newspapers, including the titular Post, should in fact publish this this very incendiary material. And an interesting companion piece to that, if you are interested in the history and like to know a bit more there, uh, one of the characters, one of the real-life characters, um, Daniel Ellsberg, is, has a very small role in the film, though he's actually integral to the to the papers themselves because he was the sort of the grandfather of whistleblowers. And there's a, a great documentary from nearly 10 years ago now called The Most Dangerous Man in America about the release of the Pentagon Papers. So that's that's a very interesting background there. There's, I mean, there's a whole lot. There's a million biographies and books about this period. But what was interesting is the, uh, the way he did have only a small part in this film. And this really was about one tangent. Very little about the New York Times. It was actually about what did the Washington Post do. So that was um, just an, an interesting tangent to take and a perspective from there because we think of the what happened in the Pentagon or what happened in the um, what happened in the White House when all this was going on in the halls of Washington. But the newspapers and journalism, uh, interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I agree with you on that because it's not the classic 
whistleblower tale about the difficulty of breaking the story. Mm. We've seen a lot of those kinds of stories recently, I think, because of you know the climate with WikiLeaks and Snowden. But um, this movie finds a way to, to keep it fresh because instead it's about the moral choice of whether to, to stand behind what the New York Times exactly. is doing. And it also is about a pivotal moment in the history of the newspaper with the economic side of the newspaper business being brought into it as sort of a, a subplot with Meryl Streep's character in her you know role as, as the head. Absolutely. And I'm going to go... I'm good with everything that's been said. I really did enjoy this film. I enjoyed the actors in it. It reminded me in some respects of Bridge of Spies and its more thematic precursors, which were all the president's men. Um, however, I'm going to do a little do a little tangent and talk about the few things I did not like about this film. Um, one of which was, sure, this is a Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks film uh, <laughs> taking place, uh, released a year after Donald Trump's presidency, and it was inevitable that it would be a pointed, a very clear ideological film. However, there were, and we, we understand that, but for a few moments, there were just times when it was a little too pointed. There are sequences where they take the audio of the Nixon tapes. They went through thousands of hours of of audio of this and had an actor playing Nixon recounting this and the audio they chose were very clear digs at Donald Trump and I understand if there's a political philosophy behind this film but for me those scenes just changed. You found just, it too much? Well I found it too much. It's just there was a dramatic tension to this entire film which hinged on this one decision by Streep's character Kay Graham and the this kind of just broke it up. It was very just suddenly, oh and we're to, suddenly at the White to House. To spoil nothing the, I really enjoyed this film but the ending is such a bad decision such a like there's a little epilogue right before the credits which is like a scene from a totally different movie (laughs) that some of us might have already seen before not to get into spoilers it's a famous 70s film um that was totally unnecessary you know to put in that white house action and if we view it in this context it just seemed to be you know a little bit of a like don't worry trump's gonna get his i felt like every sequel we've ever seen incredible it was like it was like a it was like a, a sequel teaser at the end of this you know pretty intelligent for an American a pretty sincere Hollywood film. film. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, to add on some of the things that Lisa said, I agree. The production design is great. I was thinking afterwards that Spielberg really knows the 70s. He actually lived it. <laughs> so unlike a lot of the 70s set films we've seen recently, despite there being some very funny haircuts, yes. this doesn't just seem like it's a pastiche and a parody of the 70s. It's it's what people want to work. It's not exactly. where they're on a, uh, a catwalk. It's the regular 70s go-to-work clothes and that sort of thing. But, yeah. I, but Glenn, I was going to say what you didn't like, I actually did like okay. because... One of these things these historical films teach us, and, you know, it's a bit of a trope, but, you know, the whole history repeats and do we learn nothing from history? And I actually liked those sort of um, not-too-subtle uh, Trump uh, hints because I think it was uh, – I think it just makes us think well, – and it's actually even more depressing when you see yeah. the state of, of journalism now and, and freedom of the press issues that are being discussed at the moment. And um, so I, I certainly see what you say, though I – I actually disagree. I like them. There's an argument that this could could be made that this is the first real post-Trump movie. And I would agree with that. Yeah, and Trump is an outrageous figure. So the question is, how do you address that? Should you just be as blunt as this, or is a more subtle approach the right way? I think filmmakers are going to be struggling with this challenge for quite a while. Um, but yeah, what what this movie does well outside of that political context, um, even though the politics do shadow everything in, in this, is um, being a real drama about moral choices. I was thinking early on in this film, it feels really strange to be watching a new American film 
that is unabashedly aimed at adults, outside of a few overly explanatory scenes, it doesn't dumb things down. It it keeps you know the the characters speak intelligently, you know, with jargon that you believe that people in this position would would use, and it believes that the audience will be able to keep up. Um, it keeps things grounded in as I was saying, like real moral choices and situations that we don't usually see depicted in these kinds of films. And it does, you know, ultimately end in the very Frank Capra or Steven Spielberg-like way with the uplift and the, the reassurance of doing the right thing to not say anything that, you know, is a spoiler. Um, because it's it's a fairly it's a very traditional movie, but Spielberg makes very traditional movies that nobody else is making right now. So in a way, the safeness kind of feels daring. It's nice to see like a great Frank Capra, Mr. Deeds goes to Washington well, type movie in twenty seventeen. It, it is it is old fashioned, and but to me, old fashioned doesn't mean it's bad. No, it's Frank Capra is my favorite filmmaker, and Spielberg so, is executing it so well. Yeah, so and it is a genuine, genuine <clears throat> moral tale, mm. and the questions are like the tension, like even though you know. Is history a spoiler? Like we we know yeah, what happens. Yeah, yeah. You just have to you know. Um, we know that the Washington mean, Post is not a little local paper. Yeah, exactly. Paper, with, but knowing as they describe it early in this film. Yeah, exactly. And seeing what's at stake, the whole publish publish or don't publish question, that you can actually see what's at stake. It really is a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm. And in and this is Spielberg's direction and Meryl Streep's fantastic acting, that. Even when she's not speaking, the ten- the tension in her face, her eyes, the expressions, the the sitting there contemplating, all of those moments really showed us just how much was at stake. And I think it was genuinely tense, even though I know what happens I agree. in history. Yeah. No, I, I, have, I have to agree in that respect, too. I think the actors, for me, really, really made this film. And the moral compass of it really speaks to its ethics and what they are trying to convey. And it does it very powerfully. And I do like Camper very much. And I enjoyed the aspects of that were. And I know we're talking about an Aaron Sorkin film later today. <laughs> but it, this had... So Almost much to sort and feel to some of the like the fast pacedness of the dialogue, but not as like edgy as what he would do. I, I would ha- have to agree with that, but. And with the Sorkin feel, and with as with Aaron Sorkin, there are moments of very pointed political commentary. There were many in this film, but for me, actually, we talked about the end scene. I like to talk about the penultimate scene. The most powerful moment for me was, and there was a lot of great dialogue in this film. Was actually the one silent moment in this film where a character is walking down through a crowd, and that was just wow. It amidst a lot of brouhaha and a lot of shouting, a lot of everything else that I think spoke to me, and I think hopefully a number of others more than a number of us in the film. And I know. Lee Lisa um, had a. She pointed something out to me while we were watching this. I missed it, but you want to just tell us- after though. I didn't talk to you in the film, but yes, yes. <laughs> just after. Uh, I noticed what I think was a little Easter egg. I was looking out for it. Glenn told me about this. Yeah. I think you guys might be right. Yeah. Well, I, I've spoken to a few film of your friends since then, and a couple of people I've asked them to look out for it, and they have. A couple of people have said that they noticed it. But here's what I saw, and I, this isn't a spoiler, but yeah, second last film I've seen. Uh, basically. Meryl Streep's character is walking down, let's just say, the steps of a big public building. And there are a whole lot of admirers, college-age women generally, who are sort of almost in a receiving line. And in that crowd, we see in that crowd a woman, remembering this is 1974, who looks to me like a dead ringer for Hillary Clinton circa 1974. That 
if you recall, yep. Hillary had darker hair then, a little straighter. She had the quite large glasses, and it was she looked exactly like her. So the minute we, the minute the film finished, and I said to Glenn and our other colleague who was sitting there, you know, did did you see that? Did you see that? I quickly um, googled to check when Hillary was at college, and uh, it seems right. that at that time she was college age. And I That's really, so I think Spielberg put. The Hillary yeah. look like in there because wouldn't that be wouldn't that be interesting? Look, exactly, a future yeah. first female candidate, ex first lady to be there um, at this moment of for freedom right, of the press. Right. So yeah, one. I mean, I'd love to know if, if it really was there or myself and other people are reading too much into it. Right. Um, yeah, whether or not it was intended to literally be her, it definitely evokes her, places that idea of her in the viewer's <laughs> mind, just to further the political. Um, parallels to the current situation but um, yeah I found this film if anything it's a little bit too safe it could be stronger if it were a little bit more daring in some ways but I still find it very satisfying it's a bit slow to get going but it, it needs to be said Spielberg is such a talented director visually you know this movie has a lot of energy from what could have been a very kind of boring movie like I found this a lot more energized and engaging to watch as a visual as a work in a visual medium than for example spotlight which is covering very similar territory you know spielberg rushes us along corridors or shows us you know the energy when somebody's delivering important documents in a hurry um and he stages frames so well it's just nice to see classical hollywood directing being executed so well at a time when directors can are getting in a lot of these film big films increasingly careless and yes chris on that energy thing I know everything with me does come back to classic films of the 30s and 40s, but something I, I thought of, you know that whole trope of Mickey and Judy, let's put on a show, the oh, oh such industry scenes and, and montages, where, uh, again, it's not a spoiler, but when they're in the house of Tom, um, Tom Hanks's character and basically there's a whole lot of colleagues who have to pull together to make something happen and there's sandwiches being served and food everywhere and we see this montage over time. It really felt like that, yeah, let's put on a show and into the, into the you know, let's right. go into yeah, the garage. Yeah, yeah. I just felt that, um, that energy mm. of, and it's very hard. Wonderful like, crowd staging. Exactly. A big cast to actually, uh, and, and, and you know, look at the Steven Spielbergs of, of the past, as films of the past with huge casts yeah. that he's had to uh, wrangle. And just the way those scenes were staged, you've got maybe a, you know, 10 mm. main characters and in one room he, and that's really well done. Yeah, yeah, and he avoids just doing close-ups of talking heads, which is how yes. most people, I think, would stage this movie today. He keeps it interesting to watch. Yeah, so that was The Post, otherwise known as Mr. Hanks Goes to Washington. Yeah. We'll be back in a moment talking about Molly's Game and The Shape of Water.
And that was the Cranberries with the appropriately titled Hollywood. We very sadly lost Dolores O'Reardon from the Cranberries this week. Um, they released their latest album a few months ago. I was very glad to get it. Um, it was very sad that we will not be seeing her at life, but we will be playing some Cranberries throughout the day. Um, oh, God, they're just, they're just a wonderful yeah, band. fantastic band. Excellent. But for the moment, we are talking about... Molly's Game, which is, we've referenced already in the show, this is the new film written by Aaron Sorkin, the West Wing veteran and sports show veteran and Social Network, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, A Few Good Men. He's done a lot. And the the very underrated Danny Boyle-directed Steve Jobs movie. Yes, I actually saw that recently. I really it's enjoyed it. quite that. good, right? Yeah. It has all of his favorite actors in it. It does. But this has a new one, Jessica Chastain. Um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. But Lisa, you have caught this. This is about Molly Bloom. Yes, a... real life story. And I actually only saw this yesterday. So um, as we said, it's Sorkin's debut. Now, even though he's been a, a scriptwriter for over 20 years, he's uh, it's his directorial de- debut in his 50s, which is... Um, which is uh, often late for Hollywood, and um, but I think it's quite a good debut. It's actually quite slick. It's not an exceptional film. I'd call it good, not terrific. But look, what it has is that Sorkin signature of there's words and more words and many more words and more narrations and more 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 talking and more monologues and more and more and more. But it somehow works. I think it w- it could be irritating all the speaking if it wasn't for. Jessica Chastain pulling it off because I think uh, she's just she's just quite terrific in how she how she handles all this dialogue. When you you know you had the West Wing and other um, other Sorkin projects where you had a whole lot, whole number of people sharing. You know, so Josh Lyman's walking down the hall, but he's you know, he's speaking to his colleagues. She really has in this two hour twenty film. She must be talking for over two hours. Like there's a lot a lot of dialogue, but. Again, I think I think she is good. And look, one of the things with with Sorkin, and we can discuss a little, is he does get criticised for the way he writes women's roles. Now, there there have been some problematic roles. Like I used to basically um, hate watch the newsroom because I loved some of it. And then there was one particular character, uh, Mackenzie Emily yep. Mortimer's uh, character, and some of her monologues were just so cringeworthy. It was like it wasn't the same. How was the same writer? writing the lines for the other men and then writing the lines for her. It was just, but I still loved it. I still watched it, but I was just repulsed by how crappy some of the, some of her stuff was. But he's the same man who wrote C.J. Craig, who's just this amazing role, the, uh, the um, a press secretary of um, the Bartlett administration in the West Wing. And, uh, and of course, if you didn't have Alison Janney in that role, maybe it wouldn't be as excellent. But he can write women well, it's just that he doesn't always. So I think the Molly character is quite complex, and he does do it do it quite well. The film itself, there's a lot of um, gameplay, poker playing, and I think it's very well staged that stuff. So even if you're not a card shark, you can find that interesting. And there's tension building. There's a lot of lingo that you, know, you may not be familiar with if you're not a card player. But I think it works, and I think it's well well staged. There's a, f- a few issues with uh, Kevin Costner plays her father and there's a few sort of daddy issues that I think too neatly dealt with and they're not dealt with. Um, but at, at 2 hours 20, it didn't feel that long. Like I said, not an exceptional film, but a decent debut and enjoyable enough, yeah. You, you got me all excited and they were talking about my all-time favourite show, The West Wing. I think I've seen it through 
at least three times. <laughs> I <and> love it. <laughs> oh, we can have a whole discussion about the treatment of how his female characters, who are certainly a minority in the West Wing, but it is a, by all standards, a phenomenal oh, show. Absolutely. Um, just with Molly's game, this is the, of course the story of Molly Bloom, who started a famous, or I would say infamous, high stakes poker game with yes. a number of Hollywood elites, um, unnamed Hollywood elites, and a number of other senior community leaders or whomever, and which was later exposed and which led to a great deal of controversy. And Jessica Chain Thompson plays her, and Idris Elba is in this film too. Um, I'm very excited for this because um, it has, for me, all the classic, but what, what at least looks like the Aaron Sorkin walk and talks. It doesn't, I hope it has the line, don't talk to me like I'm other people, because that seems to be in every single Aaron Sorkin thing ever made, including the Steve Jobs film. But it seems you, yeah, it sounds uh, something I'm now very much more I think I think you'll enjoy it being a, being a Sorkin fan. And, and Chastain is, as I said, I, I don't think I've seen her in anything that's not impressive. So, um... Yeah, that's that. That were my that was my thoughts on Molly's game. You know, de- okay. pretty good, pretty good film. So something momentous has happened. A new challenger has entered the ring. Yes, hello, welcome. Yeah, I just came from uh, the trepidations of nine to five work, unfortunately, which turned into nine to five forty five work, which was which terrible to begin with. Today. Unfortunately for Virat, yeah. the post gets unanimously positive reviews today. It does it does? And we w- we weren't trash talking you at all earlier. It's all right. It's, it's, it's all fake news. I can take it. <laughs> it's all fine. You Virat hated the post, by the way. So just bear that in mind. If you like Virat's opinions. <laughs> And please go see the post. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we. So that was Molly's game. It will be in cinemas next week. There are special screenings at Palace Cinemas and at a number of other cinemas around the city all throughout the weekend. Um, it's kicking off on Friday night at six. Um, the next film we are talking about is The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro. The film that may Yemo. finally, yeah, uh. Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> Excuse me, Guillermo del Toro. Yes, yeah. which may finally net him the Oscar gold he so richly deserves after making some of the greatest films of the past 20 years, including Pan's Labyrinth, which we have discussed on the show. This one, though, however, stars Sally Hawkins and Doug Jones. As Doug jo- Sally Hawkins is a cleaner in a quite secretive military institute, and Doug Jones uh, is the one she encounters in this, who is billed simply as Amphibian Man. Once again, Doug Jones plays a fish man, as he did in <laughs> Hellboy. <laughs> yes, but this is very different. Very different. From very Hellboy. different from More Hellboy. like a fish out of water, right? Yeah, yeah that's... And this also has Michael Shannon, uh, one of my all-time just... Oh, he's phenomenal, and he's particularly evil in this. Uh, it also has Octavia Spencer, Richard Jenkins, and again, Michael Stolberg, because he <laughs> might just be in every film we yep. talk about tonight. And he's tonight. just amazing, yes. Um, now, on I, I think we saw this the other day. Uh, it is one of, if not my favorite film, of 2018 so far. I'm going to say what I loved about it first, and that was the visuals. Jones, mm. um, I caught up on the latest episode of Star Trek today, where Joseph stars him, and he is a master at his particular form of performance art. This entire film had an aesthetic of what we've already discussed, which is cinema of a bygone era. It takes place partly in and above an Orpheum, and it connotes the romantic ideals and visuals and colors of cinema in every traditional, wonderful sense of the word. What I also really enjoyed about this film was how the main characters communicated. Uh, the main character, Sally Hawkins, Eliza, is mute, and you have two characters communicating in a very non-traditional way for two leads in a major Hollywood film, and it is glorious to see, and he carries it off with, I should say, Del Toro, and the others carry it off with absolute aplomb. 
Um, I'll just say Shannon. He's played a lot of pretty serious villains. He plays an irredeemable villain in this, but this film was distinguished simply by the fact that usually with an irredeemable cartoonish villain, you would relegate their character development to a scene or two. Here, it is piled on and on and mm. on, and it gives him not so much extra layers, but extra entry, which leads to some pretty confronting scenes later on. Um, the small things that did not like it, I'll say simply, or Richard Jenkins' arc. He didn't. He was the only character or actor at Phil who did not have a resolute arc in the film. I had some really? issues. Really? Ah, yeah. Okay. I'll I'll get onto my thoughts after. Oh, well, I think we'll, 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 we'll get questions discussion. The other thing I'll say is there is a subplot involving a number of Cold War warrior Russians, which, um, yeah, I think uh, not the most. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed that element of the film, not as well thought out as the rest of it. But we're very keen to get into the discussion of The Shape of Water. Um, Lisa, what did you think? Okay, look, I was transported from the first second. It was ethereal, beautiful, mesmerizing, enchanting. Like, like The Post, it's a morality tale in a different way. It's, it's an empathy tale about difference and inclusion. And Sally Hawkins in this just about silent role is exquisite. Uh, again, production design being a particular area of interest for me, her apartment was quite exquisite. Um, we could have two hours just looking, just panning her apartment. Would have, I would have been been interested in that, interested there. As you said, Michael Shannon, he was a, a nuanced villain. We also saw the villain at home in his home environment, which I liked. We didn't just see him doing his stuff at work, and we saw him. We saw his stakes change. We saw him when he was a subordinate with a boss bossing him around, and then we saw him being an awful boss, or you know, that's an underplaying it to the women working there. Uh, and actually, where I disagree with you with the Jenkins, there's two friendships that were very interesting. And one was Eliza and Giles, her neighbour, Richard Jenkins, and they're unspoken. And he's a middle-aged gay man, her neighbour next door. And I think they had quite a lovely relationship. And the other relationship is her colleague, uh, her work colleague and friend, played by Octavia Spencer. Now, this just made me think, why isn't Octavia Spencer in more films? Why isn't she the major lead in more films? She's she's had, you know, quite a few, like, hidden figures. She's one of three leads. and But she's always so terrific. And I think she deserves more exposure. But... I like those two relationships and I like the comparisons and the differences between those two. And um, the film's really like a reverse Beauty and the Beast. That's that's how I saw it. But a beautiful, unconventional love story and morality tale and I adored it. Okay. Um, sorry, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Here we're we getting, come. Yeah, here here we comes the, the fight, fight part of Fight <laughs> right. Club. I, I can't... <laughs> You know, I, when I heard the, this being called a morality tale and compared to The Post, I thought, what? Because The Post is about a decision where there's good, you know, morality is at play, but there's good reasons to make the choice on either side. I, I also heard Michael Shannon being referred to as a nuanced villain. Michael Shannon in this is is just Satan. Satan's in a movie, right? He's There's nothing... That he is one-dimensional. There is like no! extra scenes are piled on, whether or not it's relevant to the plot or not, just to make him hate us hate him more. As if him being a guy who is completely irredeemable isn't enough. Who like tortures an innocent creature, tortures everyone, you know, um, isn't enough to make us hate him. We have to also see that he tortures his wife. Like, all right, you know, whether even though that all these little. Um, adjuncts that the movie takes us down uh, essentially irrelevant and detracting screen time away from what matters, which is the romance and the development of the romance. Um, I think 
you know, there's there's essentially one good choice in this movie, and that's the one that the heroes take, which is to save the creature. You know, n- the no other choice makes any sense. And and the CGI. I mean, I was impressed by the derriere of the alien. Oh yeah, you know that's that's actually very it's mostly a suit. I know. Yeah, so yeah. Maybe very little CGI. Maybe there a was lot CGI of costume enhancements. Designs. <laughs> but padding um, in the right places. Right. But yeah, my my big problem is it has all these extra scenes like. Um, see the home life of Michael Shannon to to see that he's just in case you missed it he's a bit evil um you know this this <laughs> subplot about russian double agents and all this other stuff while that's going on i felt like i didn't see enough of the relationship between Sally Hawkins and Doug Jones amphibian man the because the eggs didn't do it for you no it didn't because <laughs> she ends up having making some pretty drastic choices and having mm-hmm. to convince other characters like Richard Jenkins to make pretty drastic choices with her so i need to really believe in the love and really feel it and i didn't it, to me this movie in some ways the plotting felt like a kids movie where it's like kids aren't going to be that interested in the romance you know let's skip over that and get to the adventure stuff but then at the end it hinges on this massive kind of romantic um I don't know, like blossoming. That you know, there's a which I only at a few points in this movie did I I really feel like that was real. The whole film felt kind of like cobbled together elements from other movies as opposed to something that was emotionally genuine. Wow. Okay. Uh, I had some other issues, but uh, some things that Chris has raised are interesting to begin with. But <laughs> also. This is okay. Let me get this out of the way first. This is a beautiful movie. I agree. It's beautifully shot. It's just as a visual spectacle. There's something to look at there, and I just don't mean something to look at in terms of the derriere of the alien, which I mentioned <laughs> earlier. There's something to admire in every scene and how it's framed and staged. But at the same time, I was very. It's a pretty consistent theme in this movie, Rob. Okay. I was not very convinced by the social commentary or the implicit social commentary that is carried out within the entire film, which felt to me like a fable of the oppressed, without any agency to begin with. Now, everyone, I mean, Michael Shannon is whatever, you know, he may be a nuanced villain or just a Satan, doesn't (laughs) matter. He is a villain, basically he has all the power and everyone else is just... The choice they make is like the Chekhov thing. You know, there's a gun on the table. What do you do? You use the gun. There is not a choice. The gun is already there. That is the only choice they can make. And, I mean, just look at the characters here. I mean, it's like a lottery of the oppressed. Honestly, you have an alien, a person from another culture, who doesn't understand. Okay, that's one part of the oppression there. You have Sally Hawkins' character with as many disabilities as you can believe. After Morty, in which he was quite spectacular, I think. She, look, she's really good in this movie. Yeah, I have to give her that. She's, she's, she's a fantastic ac- actress, and uh, it's a great performance. She, she owns the role, but the fact is, why is such a role written for her to begin with? She has nothing to do. I mean, the fact that as a character, she has nothing to do. I mean, I was just like... Is that it? Is that all to your character? And I was just like, oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, see, I thought she had so much to do. Her role, she's meant to be a cleaning woman, and that's all she's meant to do there. She takes enormous risks. I mean, we talk about there's no choices to have. I, I disagree because I think she took enormous she does, choices. She does take on a She big puts risk. her job on the line. She does things that she'd be fired for. And she... Um, 
you know, the fact that she, you know, we were trying to keep away from spoilers that, you know, she has to hide in the secret room and, and this sort of stuff and just even engaging with him and also talking about choices, uh, back to our wonderful Michael, the multi-talented, he had choices. There, there were three or four ways he could have gone uh, and I, I certainly don't think everybody's everybody's path was set. And um, His path was one of the more interesting parts of the film. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I actually liked all that mob stuff. It, and it was, okay, somewhat like a different film in that it was in the different location and mm-hmm. we met, you know, all those sort of, you know, Harry the Mouth or whatever their names yeah. were, um, or, you know, um, Russian versions. And I actually found that interesting. And this, the cute jokes about food too, which yeah. also remind me a bit of the Italian mafia films. There was a lot of that. There's a lot of wit as well, I think, just some cute mm-hmm. little cute little things like that. And I think there were a lot of nods to those classic uh, yeah, mafia films and the bad guy films. Yeah, um, I actually I have to agree with you, and I just have to disagree with her right over here. <laughs> Do you know, we I really enjoyed her role in this film. I feel they dedicated the time to showing her on the bus and through the passage of time and the daily routine of cleaning and what uh, her lifestyle, what her what her living her situation meant to her and meant and the impact it had on her psyche, and the fact that she only really had one friend in the world. And then she met this creature, and it showed that relationship developed, as was lovingly mentioned through the eggs, and then um, in many other respects. And we see her, this graduate, graduate, and go further throughout the course of the film. Um, Further to just something Chris mentioned, I would have absolutely have liked to have seen more of their relationship develop. Um, Certainly, I did like the twist at the end, and I feel it would be even more powerful if we got to spend more time with them on screen. I don't think that necessarily translates to more film time. I mentioned the Richard Jenkins character earlier. I think it's sort of an Indian. Jenna Jones read as a lost ark thing where the character is actually <laughs> entirely superfluous to the course of events, even if there is some thematic relevance. It and, kind of was, yeah. And I feel you could have removed aspects of not the entirety of this character and left all the Michael Shannon bits in because I really did enjoy watching him develop unusually so, so as a villain with unusual um, emphasis. If you see this film as a fable, and most fables are simplistic in that sense, so in that sense, maybe the narrative does work because it is very much about difference and how. We have to embrace difference. And yet, what I was, I think, most disappointed by was the fact that when the creature does get out uh, and, you know, the second half of the film does sort of focus a lot more on how uh, you can interact with different kinds of people and those kind of interactions happening, there was a nuance there that was missing. And it was just as if, you know, the world is either very good or very evil. And I just felt that kind of dichotomy really lost me. It, it, I think it, it, he's going for that kind of um, fable vibe, yeah, where things are really good and really or really evil. But man, it's jarring the way that Del Toro feels the need to throw in at times really, really gratuitous gore and sex. It's totally unnecessary to the movie. I found a lot of the time, there's a lot of the time, he, he did this in Pan's Labyrinth with the bottle getting smashed into the face, you know. I think I really know the gore to, moment you're speaking of, and I don't a, want to say it because it's a, a spoiler, well, but it involves one, an animal. Yeah, but the, the, the one you're talking there's about. There's that, there's, there's one involving a cheek, and there's, then there's also the recurring thing involving fingers, where it's like, is this necessary? He just loves putting gore on screen, whether or not it's clashing with the kind of fairy tale tone that he he wants to create. He just can't help himself. See, I think it add, adds darkness and shade to it. So it's not all because you know one criticism could be, oh, everything's too happy in this tale. But it's but if you don't simple, have the darkness, you don't have the light. It's it, the contrast. It feels like such a juvenile way to make something dark. 
Okay, you talked about the gore. Let's get back to the sex part. Again, I don't want to spoil the scene. Look, but I thought that was beautiful. My problem was more with the stuff with Michael Shannon and his wife. Oh, okay. Sorry, I was thinking of the right, our okay. main lovers, right? Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but um, I don't know. I, I, I've liked a lot of Del Toro films in the past, but this one, just from the start, everything felt false. I feel the balance of what he was trying to do, what you referred to in Pan's Labyrinth, to be much better. I yes, feel he, I agree. I feel he did this in this film because he was trying to create, and he really signals from the very first scene that this is an adult fairy tale, and... Unusually so, because we don't see these types of fairy tales. It is this fantastical 50s type romance for adults with very modern themes. And this is something which you, um, which there is an audience for, which we see very rarely and certainly in this type of mainstream release. And I think there, a lot of viewers will very much enjoy this. It is in cinemas tomorrow. Um, yeah, just before we bail on this, I, I have one more axe to grind. Man, I'm sick of movies, this current trend of um, movies celebrating the magic of movies. Like, we get it. You're a filmmaker. You love movies. It's a great way to score points with critics and, and the Academy. But, like, this movie's teetering close to, like, the artist levels of intolerable. Like, aren't movies great, especially musicals? Yeah, they are, but is that all you have to say, really? Like, to, to it just seems like masturbatory to use the, the medium of the movies to talk about how great movies are, and everyone's doing it all the time. Uh, ah. The Shape of Water is this year's La La Land. We have to have one every year. But it's, <laughs> but it's perfect Oscar bait. Isn't the point the industry celebrates the fact that it's about the industry? Exactly. So you know, right. uh, that he was on the, on the right track. The artist won, Argo won. You know. The Post might win. Well, I hope it does, because I really much enjoy it. <laughs> it is in cinemas tomorrow. This is Lie by the Cranberries, which played, uh, which was on the soundtrack for Empire Records, a much-loved cult hit. And we'll be back talking about that non-controversial film at all, All the Money in the World. Awesome. And that was the wonderful Cranberries with the Liar. Um, we are on to our last film of the week, which is Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World. It stars Michelle Williams, Christopher Plummer, Mark Wahlberg, and not Kevin Spacey. This <laughs> is about the famed Getty kidnapping. Uh, there is also a miniseries directed by Danny Boyle, which is coming mm. up soon, yes. um, as a result of which, and it was one of the many reasons which Ridley Scott has stated for why he did the reshoots on Christopher Plummer. He famously reshot 22 scenes within, I think it was 10 to 12 days. 
Um, so, yep, this is in cinemas now. Chris, what did we think of All the Money in the World? Well, to get the the big elephant in the room addressed, um, yeah, it's it's really seamless. Christopher Plummer's introduction to this film. I think you would have yep. no idea that uh, if you were not aware, and I think audiences in the future catching this film, if it if they catch it at three in the morning, which is where it deserves to be shown, you know, Whoa. 20 years down the line, um, you know, they... Uh, uh, divorced from the controversy, no one would suspect that there was any shenanigans behind the scenes of this. There's only one shot in the movie where it's obvious that Christopher Plummer isn't there and the logistics were too hard, where he's walking through the desert. So I, I don't mind that they CGI'd him in there. The rest of it, you know, fan, um, yeah, it's seamless. The movie, the, you know, the behind the scenes of this film is so much more interesting than the film itself. I thought... It was sterile and clinical in the way it looks, I think, in an attempt to bring out the feeling of empty wealth and you know, money not bringing happiness. But unfortunately, that sterility felt like it was also stretching to the script. Um, I never felt like I, could, I got close to the characters. Um, you see them in a lot of extreme situations, and it's meant to be a story of desperation, a race against the clock. But for, for the movie to be so cold robs this thriller of any of the kind of, you know, the moral choices, to go back to what we were discussing earlier, that could have been deeply felt in this movie, just aren't really there. It, it more just becomes about, like, the procedure. But I think this is, you know, um, this was more of a human tale, and Ridley Scott missed the mark in his direction. Um, on top of that, I just want to make the, anal- the kind of snarky analogy, before I close out here, that Ridley Scott is J. Paul Getty. In interviews these days, he always says it's all about the money. Movie making is a business. I'm doing what's best for the studios by making money. It was always all about the money. Money, 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 money. Or is he just being blunt? Well, I think he's being blunt, but he's, you know, if you go back to the movies that are the reason people care about Ridley Scott in the first place, like Alien and Blade Runner, when those were made, he went way over budget. He told the studios to shut up when they tried to rein him in. He was definitely all about the art, but somewhere along the line, he's transformed into the old man, you know, counting his money, working quickly on the cheap, and making artless movies. And here's another one, All the Money in the World, Incidents Now. I look at it a completely different way. Just, just, Just onto the stuff about Ridley Scott. I actually, I saw some other interviews, and I know you can take interviews out of context and, you know, you can only see, you know, take one moment and another moment. But one of the things he talked about was this whole spacey controversy. It shouldn't mean that the work of another couple of hundred people doesn't get to be seen. I admire that. And and look, I've got to say, the energy that these two 80-plus-year-old dudes had, I mean, obviously there was cast and crew and production team and all these other people who had to get it together in those uh, nine days or however many days it was, but the work, you know, two people in particular who were obviously under pressure for that for that reshoot were Scott, the director, and Plummer. And they... I think they did amazingly in that in that short time. I think it, I think it was terrific, and um, I yeah I don't see him I don't see him in that way. But I I will say in that whole theme of the money doesn't buy you happiness. Here's me again harping back to classic films, but I did see a parallel between Getty Senior and Charles Foster Kane. Uh, you know the scenes in Citizen Kane when you know going through the the Kubla Khan's or that you know the basically yeah. houses with all the artworks under sheets and all that sort of stuff. There were a few particularly dark 
actually darkly lit scenes. Did you did you see that? Or I think was it you're just definitely right. There's yeah. a moment near the end where I thought, okay, here it is, the Here's rosebud the moment. Well, that, my question is, what's Getty's rosebud? That's what I'd like to know. But uh, yeah, I definitely saw that link there. And I enjoyed that, except that was one of the moments for me that dramatically, sure, it serves a purpose, but it was inserted. There are many aspects of this film. This tale is so interesting. It is so engaging. And they inserted it's all such these an interesting completely story, yeah. extraneous historical <laughs> elements. And I don't know why. That's exactly right. And the problem is, without having read up on the story before, I, I was aware of the story, but without being aware of all the details, as I watched it, there's points where I just suddenly thought... That didn't happen. And then I looked it up afterwards, and sure enough, I was right. It's so obvious. And you'll know the points where it did not happen. Yeah, and the story you'll know. is dramatic and powerful. Exactly. It doesn't need these kinds of Hollywood spice it up moments. Yeah. On the issue of not feeling connected to characters, I'm just going to say that um, I feel the issue was that we didn't spend enough time with almost any of them. Yeah, um, I enjoyed Michelle Williams. I think she was the best in the film. I think but she was exceptional. She was really good. I agree. But it's it's all too much about like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened for us to really get a feel for what the characters are going through. I think this is Ridley Scott's attempt to be the Michael Haneke of Hollywood, <laughs> essentially. This is his happy end. He's trying to depress yeah. us, is he? <laughs> well, or at least, you know, this kind of uh, bourgeois commentary about how money will eventually make you rich but not happy but at the same time and there's a coldness to it which is a very very Haneke thing where each character even though is ultimately exceptionally wealthy yet they have no connect whether it is Michelle Williams with her father which is Christopher Palmer Plummer's character whether it's Plummer towards his grandson or even Wahlberg which who's caught up in this mess of detached people I mean this is this is and it's interesting because I think the coldness is a function of the film it's I definitely think, intended but it seems to be like working at odds with the character stuff but I think, isn't that the, isn't that the point uh, that you know everyone is so cold towards each other that you forget the actual, the heart of the film is uh, the, you know, is basically risen within you as you're watching it. You're like, why don't these people care about their own family? Isn't that the question? And then Scott is wanting you to ask that through the coldness. And I mean, that, that's a device which works and maybe you're thinking that you need a bit more of that. But I think taking that away from the characters actually works in the film's favor. Because when that sort of, you know, the stakes do come, it's that sort of, you know, rising within the character, and that sort of moment arrives, you do care, because you're like, okay, finally these characters are rising up into action, that they do care about something apart from money. Well, that's interesting. When you talk about the, the not caring, look, the thing is, the standout for me was Michelle Williams in the whole film. The weakest link to me was Wahlberg, and we can get oh, to him he in was a minute. Bad. He was the weakest link. Was but in terms of uh, Michelle Williams' character... I don't think you could say she was caught. I think she was a mother under extreme duress, thinking her child's, you know, I mean, you know, she's getting letters, you know, we're going to cut off this part and, you know, all these things are going to happen. And, you know, she's not acting like, you know, this mother would, you know, in a normal, oh, you know, my son's late home from the movies. This is extreme pressure. Uh, the frustration of knowing that her ex-father-in-law has all the money in the world and, and it looks like he doesn't want to help. And... I think she's on. I think the way. I think what she what she really brings here is the composure that she has, because she would be forgiven for just going off her head, just going crazy. It's it's all too much. But she had to, you know, dress in her neat suit and go in and you know be polite and 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 fight for what she wanted. And I think we saw her as this incredible mother. Like if we even look at the things she did earlier, before the um, before the young son is is kidnapped the things that she had to give up and the chance of money to keep 
to keep the kids together and 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 you know and almost a level of compassion for the ex-husband who was clearly troubled yeah uh i think yeah I, I i couldn't call her cold i would just say she was under extreme pressure and that was the best she could do the character i think she wasn't cold mm-hmm. i i agree with you but my problem is with I guess the direction and the script, because when Virat was talking about the coldness being a function of what the story is trying to do, I'd like to see a different, you know, more of the warmth being brought out through means beyond Michelle Williams' performance, which is really good. I'd like to, you know, have the movie and the script put me more in her footsteps, like to feel what she's feeling, because that kind of desperation is really interesting to me. And I don't think the movie stayed in that space as much as it should have to pr- create warmth that's a contrast to the chilliness of Getty. Now, for me, uh, major, I agree with what you've said. The major issue for me is that there's two thematic narratives running here. One is this idea from my perspective that Ridley Scott is obsessed with of who is actually the villain in the film. There are these competing villains who loves family more, who is actually the worst, this fellow who actually empathizes with the young Getty who he's and who has kidnapped him or the senior Getty. And Romain Jury, <laughs> great actor. Yeah. And completely parallel to that is this Michelle Williams narrative where she's been abandoned by her ex-father-in-law. She's been abandoned by her husband. Uh, she doesn't have the best relationship with other members of her family. And we empathize with her. And she is working on a whole le- other level. And we could have learned – this could have been done in tandem – I feel if there had been more sequences involving Christopher Palmer's character and Michelle Williams' character, Abigail, Definitely. and there were not. There were very limited scenes in the film where they were together. And this was a point, this was a dramatic focus of the film for sure, but I feel if there were more of these sequences, we could have seen these narratives work in tandem, but we could have had a much more emphatically powerful film. It's interesting, uh, of all the films we've discussed so far, The Post or Shape of Water, I thought All the Money in the World is most suited to be a moral fable. <laughs> and yes. this That's one wasn't. So I was surprised by that, the fact that, you know, if you're making a social point about money doesn't equal happiness, this is the most suited to that kind of narrative, except it doesn't do that. It's confused in the sense of what it wants to be, but it wants to be historical drama, because there is all these perfunctory facts about uh, the you know time and place in the world and how things are operating outside of Getty's universe. And also there is this human drama. And yet, Ridley Scott doesn't know where the film needs to go, whether it needs to go in a is a period film, or does it want to be a pure out-and-out emotional human drama? So, look, on, on that money doesn't buy you happiness thing, the thing is, the way I saw it, you know, with old man Getty there, the fact that he was so miserly, the fact that he would, and which is apparently a true, true thing when I looked it up later, did have a phone box, you know, for people to put in their dime or That's their quarter or whatever in, uh, to be so, to be that tight. And it's like he didn't have to sit there and have this inner monologue and say, oh, I'm so unhappy. The fact that he's miserly and the fact that he did these things, to me, that's code for, isn't he miserable? So I did think it was doing the whole, um, and not in a tropey way, like I just, I genuinely believed he is an example of money not buying you happiness. Because if you're that, to be that miserable, uh, what's all this money for? If not to save your alleged most beloved grandchild, uh, that's the thing. Um, If not for that, it, it showed him as being a miserable creature. And if anything... I couldn't see anybody, um, you know, being jealous of his wealth. If anything, I felt sorry for him that he was such a miserable creature. And I think it definitely brought home that whole, yeah, unhappy money situation there. 
of all the films we've discussed so far, I think this is the one that I've liked the most. And you <laughs> let's you know, and compare that with the moral tension there. Here, there is a definite moral tension which is handled quite deftly, as compared to something like The Post, where people look seriously at computer screens and want to talk about grand episodes <laughs> about moral narratives, whereas there's no actual the actual choice to make is not that big to begin with. As compared to here, the actual human stake is quite large because you can feel it. The proximity principle applies where some where in the post it's all statistics. But here you can actually see the human stake. That this is what is actually at stake and hence the moral tale is enhanced and actually feels better. I'd like to ask, um, I had read up on this quite some time before the film was released. I was familiar with the details of the kidnapping, but I'm wondering um, if there's people on the panel who were not familiar with particularly the one major act which has gone since to characterize what happened in the kidnapping. Oh, yeah. And, when I'm, and if you were aware of it, if not, how did that, how did you feel about uh, that? I, I, well, I mentioned this to my mom, this story, about, you know, this movie, and... Oh, so it's not what you just wrote down? Oh, uh, I was, yeah, yes, that, that is, is that what you're talking about. Yeah, I didn't want to do so a we're saying, yeah, yeah. We were doing some frantic mining yeah, yeah, yeah. in the two SCR yeah. studio. Yeah. I, I, I <laughs> somehow mentioned yeah. this movie to my mom, and she was just like, oh, yeah, that's that's where they did blah, 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 yeah. the thing that we wrote down. If, if you're listening to this episode, you already know. <laughs> Probably. It's pretty dark. <laughs> but, yeah, um, so did you, you, you weren't so familiar with... Well, I was after my mom told me. <laughs> Right. Oh, I just knew the the little I knew about the story. I did know that particular gruesome detail, so I, I was a bit emotionally prepared for it. Because for me, I watched this and I had the feeling that if people aren't aware of this, it doesn't foreshadow it. It comes as a huge shock. The way it is actually I that, introduced, I think that, that should be that way. Is is there really is some good? Foreshadowing, oh, it's well done. Though. Yeah. There's some visual, little visual foreshadowing. Throughout, I think. But then when it finally happens, he kind of just says it so matter-of-factually. He says, this is what's going to happen. Oh, dear. That's one of his best choices. Look, Ridley Scott is still good at executing horror scenes. You know, the the C-section in in Prometheus was a a highlight of that movie, I think. The only highlight. The only highlight of that movie, potentially, yeah. Run to the side when you're running away from something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Actually, after Reservoir Dogs and and that scene in that warehouse, uh, this is probably one of my second favorite scenes involving oh, human geez, body man. parts. He's, he's, he keeps letting the cat uh, out of the bag tonight. Uh, he can't be helped. <laughs> oh, right, right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> another, another film worth seeing Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Um, I think Ridley Scott, he just seems lost as a storyteller these days. I admire his decision to replace Kevin Spacey. I think it was done for a lot of good reasons beyond the money, money reason. I admire his energy, and he still directs with a lot of energy. I think he just hasn't found the story. He directs with energy rather than focus these days. So that was all the money in the world. Um, it is in cinemas now. It will surely be debated for a long time to come. Um, we are going to be back next week talking about purely about Netflix. So we want to know. There's a lot of Netflix films out there. There's so many. I just watched a couple in the past few days. We want to know what you want us to fight about. So shoot us a message via the 2SCR page or shoot hit us up on Falcon Screen or on Twitter and let us know what Netflix films you would like us to unpack. Yeah. So uh, now comes the part where we have to awkwardly fill three minutes. That's that's not true. I was going to talk about Bright. Oh, um, really? Actually, yeah. oh, no, no, but next week though, right? Yeah, Netflix special. Yeah, Netflix special. We're, we're going to do Bright. We're talking. Oh no, we're... no, I meant awkwardly fill the three minutes till the end of the episode. It's not three minutes. We have. We have oh. re- yes, it, don't tell these commuters what. Time. <laughs> we have, have sixty-eight p.m. in Sydney. This hundred and twenty seconds. Yeah. So we are planning on talking about Bright and possibly Mudbound. My happy Myra family. Stories. I reckon we should talk about my favorite stories. My happy family. Yeah, it's a it's a a Georgian film that's gotten some very good reviews, and Netflix picked it up for worldwide distribution and released it recently. And you all know that uh, Chris has 
was first love was Okja last year, and he interviewed Bong Joon Ho. Okja, so. yeah, um, we've spoken about a bit about that one, but we could give it another little little whirl because it's an interesting one to talk about in terms of programming choices, right? Yes. Um, what else is there? There's uh, the Crown series two. Oh yeah, oh, yes, much That's better than the casting news. Casting news there, and oh yeah, is that is that being confirmed? It's a bit of. Are a you talking about the Margaret role or the the Margaret role? Yes, um, that's. I believe it's been confirmed. A movie potentially worth talking about that's not a Netflix original film, but um, they did a deal to have it in a whole bunch of territories, including Australia, is Nocturama, which is a movie that a lot of people loved, and I don't think anyone in the Film Fight Club panel did. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of interesting movies on Netflix that I often get lost in the shuffle because of the focus on television, which is one of the subjects we can talk about next week. And we will. So we are about to wrap up. Stage is on next with excellent theatre coverage for a whole hour of the Sydney Festival. I've got a few tickets to a few things, so I'm very excited for that. Um, I'd like to thank Lisa Maloof from the Limerick Review for coming on, and you can find her on Twitter at Lisa Maloof, M- Lisa, M-A-L-O-U-F. Um, Lisa, it was great, and we hope to have you back on soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, guys. I had a great time. It was really hey, fun. Please and come on again. It was fun disagreeing on a few yeah, things yeah. as well. Yeah, That's that, what it's all about. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's been great. So please do stay tuned for stages. And there's been Glenn Falgatstein, Lisa Maloof, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru on Film Fight Club. And look us up at the 2SCR page. Look out for, for Hillary Clinton in that movie and let us know what you want us to fight about. The movie is the post. Good night. Good night. <laughs>